would you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Thank you, worship guys, for leading us in worship tonight. So we have uh, a lot to cover this evening as we're going to finish up chapter 4 and go all the way through chapter 5. So I want to just encourage you to strap on your seatbelts. And as Tyler would say, are you ready? (laughs) All right. Well, the focus of our time last uh, week was we looked at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, and the focus of, the theme of that uh, section was on holiness, that Paul would say that we should abstain from sexual immorality and each one of us should know how to possess our own vessel in sanctification and honor. And so the focus was on holiness, walking in holiness, and tonight... We're going to conclude our study in the book of 1 Thessalonians, and tonight the theme is hope. You see, the believers in Thessalonica were confused concerning what happened to their loved ones when they died. And they were also wondering if the persecution they were encountering meant that they were already in the great tribulation time. So Paul finishes up his letter here in 1 Thessalonians by bringing clarity to those two issues. And in doing so, he's going to give us here four reasons why we as believers in Jesus Christ can have great hope. And so we're going to look at, this is going to be our outline tonight. These are four reasons why we can have hope as believers. Number one is because death is not the end for the believer in Jesus Christ. Number two, because Jesus has risen from the dead. That is really the centerpiece of our hope. Number three, because Jesus is coming again for his bride. And number four, we are not appointed unto wrath. And so that's going to be our focus tonight. We're going to pick it up in verse 13. Follow along as I read. Paul writes this. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Pause there and give me your attention. Now we have noted in our study here in 1 Thessalonians that Paul only spent three weeks there in Thessalonica, but God did some radical things in those three weeks. The church was born and Paul began to really pour into them, probably meeting every single day, probably several times a day and teaching them and concerning the essential doctrines of the faith. And one of the things that Paul spoke to them about was the coming again of Jesus. In fact, we pointed out, if you were with us in our very first study in First Thessalonians, how Paul mentions this, the coming again of Jesus in every single chapter in First and Second Thessalonians. And that's kind of remarkable when you think about how young a group of believers, how young this church was, but it was very, very important. However, after Paul left the believers, they began to wonder about their loved ones who knew Jesus, who had died, 
before Jesus had returned. And they were troubled by the idea that these Christians would miss out on this great future event, that they might miss out on the victory and the blessing of Jesus coming. And so Paul deals with that concern here at the end of chapter 4. And so he's talking here about the hope that we can have as believers in the face of death. And this is our point number one. The reason for our hope is death is not the end for the believer in Jesus. Look at verse 13 again. He says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Now, when Paul says that I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep, he's talking about those who have died. You see, sleep was a common way to express death in the ancient world. We see this in John chapter 11. Jesus got word that his friend Lazarus had died, and he told his disciples, he said to them in John 11, verse 11, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. And then the disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well, he's going to wake up. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking a rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And so from that example, the Christians began to call death sleep because they emphasized the idea that we were resting, those who had died were resting with the Lord in heaven. Paul the Apostle, he made this very, very clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, when he declared plainly that to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. That's the hope. That's the beauty that we have as believers, that we know that when we breathe our last breath here on planet Earth, that we breathe our next breath in heaven. Because to be absent from this body, this body is a tent is to be present with the Lord. When this tent gives up and we breathe our last, we go to heaven. So for the believer, death was seen as resting with the Lord. That death was not the final. It wasn't the end of the story. And so for any of us here who have experienced a loved one who has died... You know, my father in 2020, right before COVID, went home to be with the Lord. In 2018, on my birthday, my nephew died in a car accident and went home to be with the Lord. And I am so just excited to know that my father, Anthony, and my nephew, Anthony, are in heaven together and that I'm going to get to see them one day, you know? So this is the idea that Paul is talking about here. But here's what's interesting. The Bible never ever describes the death of an unbeliever as sleep. Only the believer. Never the unbeliever because for the unbeliever, there is no rest in death. There is no peace. There is no comfort for them in death. For those who die not knowing Jesus, unfortunately, because of their choice of rejecting Jesus, they go to hell where they will spend eternity in a place that the Bible describes as a place of utter torment, of utter darkness, of weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Paul is wanting the believers here in Thessalonica to know that we have this great hope concerning those who have died, that death is not the end of their story, but it's really just the beginning. That's why I like to say that, that for us, this life, It's like the prologue to a book. You know how you read the prologue of a book and the prologue is sort of the story before the story or the story that explains the story? That's what this life is for us. This is the prologue. We get so worked up about, you know, this life and what's happening. This is the prologue, but the real story is what happens after we die and when we go to be with Jesus, because that's what the Bible describes as eternity. And that's why I like to say, later is longer. Everybody say that. Later is longer. Okay? It is. Eternity is a lot longer than 70, 80, 90, 100 years that you might live here. So that's the real story that the Lord has for us. Right now, we are in the midst of, of the prologue. So death is really just the beginning. 
So Paul says, we do not sorrow. Now, I want you to note that. He says, we do not sorrow, but he says, we don't sorrow as those who don't have any hope. So he's saying, it's okay to sorrow. When a loved one passes, when somebody that we know that knows the Lord passes, we we do sorrow. Our heart breaks. Why? For us. Because we are going to miss them. Hopefully, no one is, is, I'm not sorrowing for my dad, you know, when he died. Like, oh, you know, his body was shutting down. You know, he'd had a stroke 10 years prior. and, And he used to tell me all the time, Rob, I'm so ready to go home. Because part of his body didn't work anymore the way that it used to. His right side didn't work right. And so he was like, I'm so ready. So when, when my dad died, I did not sorrow for him. Like, oh, he gets, you know, too bad he doesn't get to live in this body that he hates anymore. But we sorrow for us because I'm going to miss him. I still miss him. I think about him all the time still. So we sorrow for us, but we sorrow not as those who don't have any hope. And when the Bible speaks of hope, it speaks of an absolute expectation of coming good. An assurance, in other words. It's something that you can bank on. And the hope is this, as that, is that there is life after death. And our, the, the hope that we have is based upon the promises of God. And Jesus made this promise in John chapter 11. He arrives there in Bethany after the death of Lazarus. And Martha, the sister of of Lazarus, comes to him and says, Lord, if you would have been here, my, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus said, your brother will live again. And Martha said, oh, I know, Lord, he will, that in the, the, in the, in the resurrection in the last days, I, I understand that. I know about, you know, eschatology. And Jesus said this to her. He said, I am the resurrection and the life, John eleven twenty five. And he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked her this question, do you believe this? And with that statement and with that question, Jesus was dividing mankind into two groups, those who have hope and those who have no hope. But he was, he was telling her and he was telling us that our hope is based, it's connected to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's point number two. Paul, Peter, the, the apostle, he described it this way in his epistle when he said, we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the living hope that we live with, that Jesus beat death so that death wouldn't have to beat us. Again, Paul said in, there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, that to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. That is our hope. So here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul is affirming the, that reality and that hope. Again, look at verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, lest you should sorrow as others who have no hope. Now, verse 14 is very important. For if, really that should be since. For since we believe, this is what we believe, this is what our faith is based on, this is what we're going to be celebrating in in a month at, at Moonlight Amphitheater on Easter Sunday. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep, those who have died, who were in Jesus. So this is what Paul is saying. Jesus is coming back again, and those who have died in Christ, they're going to be with him when he comes. And then Paul proceeds to tell us what this is going to look like. Look at verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. What Paul is saying is this is something that Jesus taught. 
This is his idea. This isn't my idea. This is by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep, those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So it's here that Paul brings up the doctrine of the rapture of the church. And this is our reason for hope number three, is that Jesus is coming for his bride. Now, there are those who are critics. There are those critics who don't believe in the rapture. And they are prone to say, how can you believe in this idea of the rapture when the term rapture isn't even in the Bible? And that is true. The term rapture is not in the Bible. But I want you to notice the phrase caught up in verse 17. You see, the phrase caught up in in the Greek is one word. The New Testament was written in the Greek language. And it is one word, and it is the Greek word harpazo. Everybody say harpazo. Harpazo. One more time, harpazo. Harpazo. So tomorrow when you go to work, you can tell somebody, I learned some Greek last night at church. Do you want to hear it? Okay, I'll give you another one in just a minute. But harpazo means to be snatched away. I guarantee you, your friend at work will say, sure, I'd love to hear that. You can tell them, I learned the word harpazo, and you can tell them in the last, what does that mean? And you can tell them, it means to be snatched away, and then you can talk to them about what we're going to talk about tonight, okay? (laughs) So harpazo means to be snatched away to meet Jesus. And so here's, here's what happened. When the New Testament was translated into Latin, the translators used the word raptus for the word harpazo, and that's how we get our English word rapture. But in most English versions of the Bible, verse, in verse 17, instead of using the word rapture or rapture, they use the phrase caught up or snatched away to describe what was going to happen. Because this is what Paul is saying, that those who are alive and remain are going to be snatched away. They're going to be caught up. And so Paul is saying that there is a day coming when Jesus is going to come. Now get this. Don't miss this. He's going to come not to planet earth. That's his second coming. He's not coming to planet earth, but he's coming to the clouds. And there is going to be this reunion that takes place where the believers who are alive on planet earth are caught up to meet the believers who will be with Jesus. And these are the believers who have already died and have gone to heaven. Paul spoke of this glorious event in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he said this. It'll be on the screen. But I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, meaning die, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible, that's this body, must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So Paul says that there's a day coming when we're going to be changed in a moment, in the blinking of an eye. And that word changed, it, we get our English word, in the Greek, we get our English word from it, metamorphosis. It's the idea, it's the picture of how the caterpillar goes into the cocoon and comes out as a butterfly. It goes into the cocoon as this ugly little crawly thing, and it comes out as this blue, beautiful thing that can fly. It's a metamorphosis. Well, that's what Paul is saying. There's going to come a day where we are going to experience that metamorphosis where this mortal is going to put on immortality. That there's going to be complete change in our bodies as we are given our heavenly bodies. And this is what Paul is telling us. For some, that happens in death. That happens when they die. 
That they die, and, and you can read in there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he goes into this big, long discussion there about this body being a tent, but we're going to take off this tent because there's a body awaiting for us in heaven that God has made for us. And so for some, that metamorphosis, that change happens at death. But for others of us, those who are alive, when this event called the rapture happens, it's going to happen to us just like that. In a moment, we're going to find ourselves here on planet earth in the blink of an eye. We meet the Lord in the air. He takes us to heaven and we receive our new glorious bodies at that time. And who's Who's ready for that? Amen? All right? Now, you know where this idea of the rapture first originated from? It actually originated with Jesus himself. Because Jesus gave another promise on the night that he was going to be going to, before he went to the cross, he's meeting with his disciples in that upper room, and he says this to them in John chapter 14. Again, this will be on the screen. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, let's think about this passage. I want you to note a few things. Jesus says, I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for you. Where did Jesus go when he ascended after his crucif- after his resurrection? Where did he go? Heaven. Okay, this is his father's house. This is where Jesus went. This is where Jesus is to this day, at this moment, at the right hand of the father, where he has gone to heaven to prepare this place for us. But then Jesus says, and I will though come again to receive you to myself. I'm coming again to receive you, that where I am, there you may be also. I'm going to heaven, that's where I'm going to be, and I'm coming back again to receive you. And it's interesting, that word receive is another Greek word called paralambano. Everybody say paralambano. So I love this one because it sounds Italian, you know. <laughs> Paralambano, and that means to take to oneself. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to my father's house. I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I'm going to come again that I might take you to myself. That we might be together, that you might be in this place that I am preparing for you. Jesus here in John chapter 14 is talking about the rapture. He's not coming to set up his kingdom. He's not talking about his second coming. He's talking about coming to take his disciples, his followers, to this place in heaven that he's preparing for them. You see, the Bible talks about three comings of Jesus. His first coming is what we call the incarnation. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. It's Jesus coming from heaven to this earth as a little baby and coming for the sole purpose that he might be the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's his first coming. And then there's what the Bible describes as his second coming. At his second coming, he is coming to this earth after the tribulation time, and he comes not as the lamb, but he comes as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's coming to set up his kingdom here on planet earth. That's his second coming. But in between his first and second coming is this event known as the rapture of the church where Jesus is coming not to the earth, but to the clouds that he might call up his church to meet him and take them, to meet them in the air and take them to heaven. This is what Jesus is referring to here in John chapter 14. I'm going to my father's house, but I'll come again, not to the earth, but I'm coming again to take you to heaven. So I want you to catch this. The confusion with the Thessal- those in Thessalonica was not about whether or not the rapture existed. They fully believed that, that it was coming. 
that Jesus was coming, that it was going to happen. The question had to do with what happens to those who die before the rapture takes place? Are they going to miss out on this glorious event? And Paul is saying, no, they're not going to. Now, the question comes into play, though, there in verse 16, when Paul says the dead in Christ are going to rise first. Like, what, what does that mean? And I think, again, verse 14 is a key to this to answer that question. Look at it again. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him, with Jesus, those who sleep, those who have died in Jesus. Paul is saying, those who have died, those who are asleep, God is going to bring them with Jesus. That means they're already with him, right? They're, they're already with him in Jesus. That means that they are already with the Lord. So we could say this, that the dead in Christ have already risen. They're already there. They're already in God's presence. Again, Paul said to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. Pastor Chuck used to give this analogy, and this is the way he explained this verse. And I think it's a good way. Others have tried to explain it some other ways. But he said, you know, in heaven, there is no time. In heaven, time is everything is always in the now. It's right now. So those who are in heaven, they've already experienced this. They've already taken a part of this. And so this is the point that Paul is making here, that the dead in Christ have already risen. They're already there. They've already experienced this transformation that is taking place. And you know, some people falsely teach that believers, when they die, they remain in the casket. They remain in the ground until the rapture. They call it soul sleep. How many of you have heard of that before? Soul sleep. So, so those who have died are just waiting. They're just hanging out and waiting for this day to happen. But I want to ask you, what did Jesus say to the thief who was on the cross? Remember when the, the thief who was on the cross and Jesus said to him, he didn't say, you know, when he, when he put his faith in Jesus, he didn't say, okay, that's awesome. And you are going to sleep for a couple of thousand years. And then you're going to be resurrected. No, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. So those who have died, they are with Jesus right now. They are, are in heaven. They have already risen first. And when the rapture happens, they're going to come with Jesus to meet those who are alive on the earth as believers in Jesus, as we're caught up to meet him in the air. And this is a reunion that you are not going to want to miss, all right? I've never gone to one of my high school reunions. In fact, I don't even think my high school is, in my class has even had a reunion. I've never got a notice. I went to kind of a barrio school. Um, and uh, <laughs> so I don't even, it was, like, it was kind of like, you're gone and we're glad and, you know, we don't want you to come back. So, you know. Um, but this is a reunion you're not going to want to miss as we're united with Jesus and those who have gone ahead of us. So Paul wanted the Thessalonians to know that those who are asleep, Christians who have died before Jesus returns, will by no means be at a disadvantage. They will share in this glorious reunion. And I love the way that Paul ends this chapter in telling us that Jesus is coming and we're going to be with him. So therefore, look at verse 18, because of all that, comfort one another with these words. Now, despite everything that I just shared, there are still those today in the church who even deny the idea that the rapture is a biblical concept at all. There are some teaching today that this whole idea of the rapture started with a guy by the name, a pastor by the name of John Darby in the year 1830. But I think it's very, very clear from what we just talked about in John 14, Jesus was talking about the rapture. 
He wasn't talking about his second coming. He's talking about the rapture. And it's also, I think, very clear that in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul was talking about the rapture, this metamorphosis, this change that happens. We're not all going to sleep, die, but, but we're, we're all going to be changed. And for some of us, it's going to happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. But what's interesting is on top of that, early church, the early church father, a guy by the name of Ephraim the Syrian, wrote these words in A.D. 373, long time before John Darby, and it should be on the screen. For all the saints and elect of God are gathered, get this, prior to the tribulation that is to come, and taken up to be with the Lord, lest they see the confusion that is to be overwhelming in the world because of sin. Most dearly beloved, believe the Holy Spirit who speaks in us. Now we have spoken before because the end of the world is near. We ought to understand, brothers, what is eminent, that is, All saints and the elect of the Lord will be gathered together in the clouds before the tribulation, which is about to come and are taken to the Lord in the sky in order that they might not see at any time the confusion in the world, which overwhelms this world because of sin. This church father wrote that to the church in A.D. 73. Okay, and understand this wasn't just some, you know, obscure guy. This was a powerful pastor. This was a guy that God was using in the third century. He's a guy who has written hymns that the Eastern Orthodox Church is still singing to this day. But he wasn't the only one. You could go back as far as 150 AD, where another church father, uh, the shepherd of Hermes was his name, wrote about the rapture of the church happening before the tribulation. Um, there was also Victorinus, the bishop of Gatto in 270 AD, or Jerome in the Latin Vulgate in 400 AD writing about this. Now, it's interesting, in the Middle Ages, the rapture wasn't talked about hardly at all. And part of the reason for that is the church was in the dark ages, going through a very, very kind of dark time. But then the Reformation came. And there were other church leaders who wrote about the rapture in the 17 or 16 and 8, 1700s. And their names are, are going to be listed here if you want to take a picture of that. But a whole bunch of these different guys that wrote about the same thing, that the rapture was going to happen and that it would happen before the tribulation time because they interpreted what Paul was saying here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 to be exactly what we been talking about tonight. So this is not a new idea. But if you are still, you know, want some more information about this topic and subject, I want to encourage you, and the link will be, you'll see it on the screen, to go back to a year ago, January 2022, our prophecy update, where we talked all about the rapture, spent about an hour talking about that subject, if you want to look into that for, in greater detail. But for the sake of our time tonight, so you can have some time in groups, Let's move on to chapter 5. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. Now, when he says concerning the times and the seasons, what times and seasons is he talking about? Well, again, this is a letter. There are no chapter breaks in, in, in this letter as it was originally written. Translators have put these in. This was a letter that Paul wrote to this church. So the context is the rapture. This is what he's been talking about. So he says, concerning the times and the season, brother, I don't, I don't need to write to you about it. I, I taught you in detail about this. And then he says this, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Now, when he says the day of the Lord, understand this, he is not talking about a single day. The day of the Lord is a 
time period. And it's a time period that begins with the rapture of the church and ends at the second coming. That whole time period is known as the day of the Lord. And Paul says, you have no need that I should write to you about this because you know that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. In other words, it comes as as an unexpected time. It comes as a surprise, we might say, to those who are not expecting it. Because, you know, you guys know this, thieves don't call ahead, right? They don't call you and say, you know, Mr. Salvato, this is your neighborhood burglar, and I just want you to know this Friday between 9 and 11, we're going to rob your house. You know, they don't do that, right? We've had two break-ins, one when we lived in Oregon, one here in California, and we did not get a phone call, a text, an email, a letter ahead of time letting letting us know that they were going to break into our house. No, it comes as an unexpected time. It comes when you're not expecting. It comes to take you off guard. And this is what Paul is saying. The rapture is going to catch a lot of people off guard. Notice what he says in verse 3. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Notice that sudden destruction. Why? Because after the rapture comes the tribulation time, a time when God will pour out his wrath on a world that has rejected Jesus. That's what the tribulation time is. So he says it's going to come. Upon them as labor pains, upon a, a pregnant woman, at a time when they're not expecting, when they say peace and safety, verse 4, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Here's what he's saying. When it comes to the idea of the rapture of the church, the Bible is very, very clear that no man knows the day or the hour of the coming of the Son of Man. No one knows the day or the hour. If you ever hear somebody saying that this is going to be the day, run. In fact, I would even get susceptible or or suspect of somebody who would say it's going to happen this year. The Bible says we don't know. We don't know. No one can pinpoint the day. We don't know the day or the hour, but it also says that we can know the times and the seasons. And Jesus gave the the illustration of it being like like a weatherman. He says, you know, you can look out at the clouds and see when there's a storm brewing. You can tell from the signs what's coming. And that's what Jesus was saying about the days leading up to his coming. It's like, you don't know the day or the hour, but you can know the times and the seasons if you are paying attention. And Paul says here, look, we're not in the dark. When you're in the dark, you can't see. But you belong to the light. You can see. You can tell, you can be aware. So be watchful, be ready, be on guard. Verse seven, for those who sleep, they sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. So what he's saying is those who don't know the Lord, they are in the dark. They're sleeping. They're not paying attention. They're they're just, you know, partying. They're just getting drunk like, hey, there's nothing to be worried about. Things are just always as they have always been. They're just caught up in living for the moment. And I got to tell you, one of the things that just grieves my heart to no end is when I see believers or those who profess to know the Lord living in that same way. Just living for the moment, paying no attention or having no idea that, that eternity is at stake, that Jesus is coming and we need to be watching and ready. So that can't be us. Paul said, this is how the, those are the dark, this is how the unbelievers live, but not us. Look at verse eight. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake, we're alive, or sleep, die, we should live together with him. That's the end goal, to be with Jesus. So he's saying, you be watching, you be ready, 
You be sober. You make sure that you realize that we are in a battle. You make sure that you have on the full armor of God. And here's a great way to be ready. I love this verse. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 says this. And let us, everybody say let us. Consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some. Don't forsake fellowship, but exhorting one another, encouraging one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. He says, this is what we need to be about. We need to be stirring up one another to love and good works, encouraging one another as we see the day approaching. Because we know this, Paul says that God did not appoint us unto wrath. He didn't appoint us to go through the tribulation, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is our fourth and final reason for hope, is that we are not appointed as believers unto wrath. Now, that statement that Paul makes here about us not being appointed under wrath is one of the reasons why I believe and why we teach here at Calvary Vista that the rapture happens before the tribulation time and that it can't even be the mid-tribulation time. Because here's why. The tribulation time begins in Revelation chapter 6. It's the seal judgments. And during the tribulation, this is what you need to understand, okay? Everything is originating from heaven. There's three consecutive judgments. The seal judgments, the bowl judgments, and the trumpet judgments. And all three of them are originating from heaven. Why? Because it's the wrath of God that's being poured out upon planet earth. So God is the one, in other words, who is orchestrating all of this time. And it's important to understand that. Some people, they, they see, you know, believers being persecuted in other countries and they think, you know, why should we in the West get, get to escape that? And, you know, we're, we're obviously, we're going to go through part of the tribulation time. No, no, persecution is coming from the outside. It's coming from man, from other men. The wrath of God in the tribulation, it's coming from God. It's God pouring out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. And so Revelation chapter 6 starts the tribulation time. It starts with the Antichrist coming on the scene. The first seal is open. And by the time we get to the sixth seal in Revelation chapter 6, we read this. It'll be on the screen. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves. So this is every person hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand. So here we see in the very beginning of the tribulation time, the wrath of God being poured out. And Paul says, we're not appointed for that. That's not for us. But we've been appointed to obtain salvation. Jesus died. He on the cross, listen, took the wrath of God upon himself. That's what was happening at Calvary. He was taking the wrath of God, the punishment upon himself for all of us. Why would God pour his wrath out on us again when Jesus has already bore that wrath for us on the cross? So Paul says, you're not appointed unto that, but to obtain salvation. And notice how he ends uh, this section again in verse 11 when he says, therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you are also doing. I think if God planned for us to go through any part of the tribulation, Paul would have said, okay, so gear up, store up, and get yourself ready because it's going to be really, really hard. But he doesn't say that. He says, no, comfort one another that because that, they were already dealing with persecution coming from outside, from Rome. But the wrath of God coming upon the world, Paul says, that is not for you. 
Now, one of the criticisms that people have in the church today about those of us who believe in a pre-trib rapture is this. They say that you guys who believe in the pre-trib rapture, you have an escapist mentality. You just want to get out of here. And they, they say, you look at what's going on in the world today, and you think the only hope is for Jesus to come again. And so you're like, Lord Jesus, please come quickly and get us out of here. And they say, and they, and they, they, they condemn us. You know, they condemn people who think that way because Jesus said that while we're here, we need to be busy about his kingdom. And so the, those, there are Christians who do have that escapist mentality. And, and I would admit, I think that is wrong because the admonition that we do have from the Lord is that we are to be busy, that we're to be about his kingdom. And that's why I always say this in our prophecy updates, that the goal of these prophecy updates is not to, to create in your heart an escapist mentality, but to create in your heart a mentality of activism, that I want to be busy about the things of the Lord and leading up to his kingdom. And I think Paul would agree wholeheartedly with that sentiment because we see that clearly in the way he ends the book of 1 Thessalonians here in chapter 5. We're going to go through this really, really quickly. But after all this discussion on the rapture and the tribulation, Paul ends the book with what could seem like random thoughts. But I don't think they're random at all. He's telling us Jesus is coming and this is what we should be doing and how we should be acting as we watch and wait. And notice in doing so, he's giving us some ideas on how we can stir one another up to love and good works. Notice verse 12. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. So what he's saying basically here is love and esteem your pastors, those who are teaching you and admonishing you. And I'll just say this, the best way you can do that for, is to pray for us. The best way you can love us and esteem us is to pray for us. We need your prayers. But then he says this, be at peace among yourselves. So in other words, there's no room for division. We're all on the same side, guys. Why are we fighting? The church is more divided right now than any time I've ever seen in my life. And it's sad. We shouldn't be. He tells us, be at peace among yourselves. And so I like to live by this principle. In the essentials, unity. In all the things that pertain to the essentials of the faith, you know, the deity of Christ, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the Trinity, and all of those things, um, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. There's room. There's freedom to disagree. If you have a different view on eschatology, that's fine. You can be wrong, but um, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, no, no, but uh, it's okay. There's liberty. There's freedom in that. So in, in essentials, unity, non-essentials, liberty, but in all things, love. We're going to love each other. We're going to encourage one another. So he says, be at peace among yourselves. Verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unwor- unruly. In other words, ro- warn those who are rebellious. Those who are living in sin, wake them up. Wake them up. Warn them. Don't, ta- don't, don't you know, exercise tolerance toward their sin. Warn them. You know, I love this phrase that the law is for the rebellious, but grace is for the repentive. And so there is that, that room for that strong warning to those who are unruly, being rebellious. And then he says, comfort the faint-hearted. Those who are weary, comfort them. The battle's hard. Paul told the Galatians, don't grow weary in well-doing, for in... For you will, in due season, reap if you don't lose heart. Don't grow weary. So encouraging those who are faint-hearted. And then he says, uphold the weak. Others are weak. Others are just struggling. We need to come alongside of them. And then he says, and be patient with all. Patience is essential for being a peacemaker and comforting the faint-hearted and upholding the weak. You need patience. 
Have patience with people. In verse 15, he says, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Another way of saying, pursue being that peacemaker. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. In verse 16, he says, and rejoice always. You know, people, we're to be people of joy. We're to be people of gratitude. And, you know, you will stand out. If you seek to live that way, to focus on, you know, what you can rejoice in, you're going to stand out from all the complainers in our world. And our world is filled with complainers. In verse 17, he says, pray without ceasing. It's another way of saying live in constant communion with Jesus. I always like to say this, that prayer, our prayer life is really the mark of how dependent we are on the Lord. The more dependent upon him we are, the more we will be talking to him all the time. Verse 18, and everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Look for reasons in every situation to be thankful. And then he says in verse 19, and do not quench the Holy Spirit. You know, do you realize we can quench the Holy Spirit? You can quench, you can stifle the work of God's Spirit in your life. And the best way to not do that is to follow the Word of God and respond to the Holy Spirit's promptings as he's prompting you in your life and the things that that he wants you to change and the things that he wants you to do and and when we don't respond we're quenching the work of the holy spirit and then he continues in verse 20 do not despise or scoff at prophecies but test all things test every word be like the Bereans who took what Paul said and they searched the scriptures to see if these things were so. And then he says, and hold fast to what is good. That we're to take the wheat of the things that we're hearing and to throw away the chaff is the idea. And then he says in verse 22, abstain from every evil. And then he gives this final prayer in verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who calls you is faithful, praise the Lord, who will also do it. The work that God has begun, he's going to be faithful to complete it. And then Paul says, brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us tonight. We thank you for the hope that we have in the face of death, that death is not the end for us. We thank you that we have hope, Jesus, because you have begotten us again to a living hope through your resurrection. And we thank you, Lord, for the hope we have that you are coming again one day for your bride. And we want to be watching and we want to be ready. And Lord, we also thank you tonight for the hope that we have that we are not appointed under wrath, but to obtain salvation. And so, Lord, as we enter into these groups and we discuss uh, the things that we've talked about tonight and how you've stirred our hearts, I pray that this would be a fruitful time, an encouraging time, and that you would just use this time to build us up, that, that it would be a time of us stirring one another up to love and good works. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.